The Equilibrium Podcast with your host, Ryan Young. I am the host and producer of Equilibrium, a radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, and I am fascinated by ecology and the human-animal relationship, and I want to inform you. If you're an environmental activist, scientist, or just somebody that is concerned about the future health of the planet's ecology, this is a podcast for you. Featured in this podcast is an interview with Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And welcome to Equilibrium on CKUT 90.3 FM. This is your host, Ryan Young. We've got an interview with Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. He spoke to us from his home in Vermont, a man that doesn't really need an introduction. But, of course, if you've never heard of Paul Watson, he is the founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, which is an activist organization, or really a marine wildlife conservation organization that was set up to enforce laws, treaties, resolutions, and regulations that were established to protect marine wildlife. Many of these laws are never enforced by the world's governments. So Paul Watson, after being a founding member of Greenpeace, started the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society to try and, at first, eradicate pirate whaling, which was happening um, in a lot of places all over the world. And he was pretty successful at that, and later on the organization broadened its efforts to include endangered dolphins, tuna, codfish, seals, and has really been a thorn in the side of the fishing industry for many years. Whether the targets were whales, dolphins, seals, or some species of fish. The organization became much more well-known around the world after the reality TV series Whale Wars became a hit television show on Animal Planet and Discovery Channel. And from that point on, uh, Sea Shepherd really has become sort of an international movement with various chapters operating in over 40 countries. Paul Watson was also chosen by Time magazine as one of the environmental heroes of the 20th century, and that happened in the year 2000. Paul Watson joined Equilibrium by phone from his home in Vermont. Here is that interview now. This is Ryan Young with Equilibrium on CKUT 90.3 FM, and I'm here with Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, the founder of the organization and its leader and also uh, one of the founding members of Greenpeace. And Paul has been involved in marine conservation for going over, I guess, 40, 40 years now. Is, is it, Paul, or would it be more than 40 years? Yeah, about 50 years, actually. Wow. So you, you lead uh, what is now, I guess, the largest uh, navy in the world that isn't part of a government, so the, the largest non-governmental navy in the world. Uh, how many ships do you have in the world now? Uh, we have 14 ships right now that are deployed around the planet. Wow. One of the ones that I hear the most about is uh, your work trying to uh, protect the endangered uh, vaquita in Mexico. Can you tell me a little bit about that campaign? 
yeah, we're now in the seventh year of uh, Operation Milagro to uh, try and prevent the uh, extinction of the Bikita porpoise, which is the smallest and most endangered cetacean on the planet. And I'm quite confident that if it wasn't for those seven years, that the Bikita would now be extinct. But we've confiscated about 140,000 meters of uh, illegal nets and uh, have been successful in uh, keeping the Bikita uh, refuge clear of uh, poachers. It's a it's a violent campaign. I mean, we're attacked uh, regularly with Molotov cocktails and metal objects and shot at. And uh, and unfortunately, in the uh, last day of the of 2020, uh, we were attacked by um, a bunch of uh, fishermen in uh, in pangas and uh, throwing Molotov cocktails and and that. And uh, of course, we're, our crew are under the instru- under the instructions to take evasive action. In other words, get out of that out of the area when coming under attack. And also, by the way, we have Mexican military or Navy on board. But uh, these guys were incredibly um, aggressive. And um, in the attack, one of them came right across the speeding bow of the uh, of the Farley Moat and got uh, basically his tanga cut in half. And uh, one of the fishermen was killed in the, in the process. Uh, we were able to rescue them and bring them on board. And uh, as we were trying to transfer them to the Sharpie to bring to shore, uh, we did transfer them. The Sharpie was attacked by a mob of fishermen on the, on the shore. So it was extremely difficult just to get them off the boat into the hospital. So this is an ongoing campaign. And, uh, you know, we have uh, three ships now. I've, I've deployed the third vessel, the John Paul de Jory, to assist the Bali Mollet and the Sharpie. Uh, so we have three former U.S. Coast Guard patrol boats that are uh, guarding the Bikita Porpoise. It must be a bit of a complex, complex situation where you have the government of Mexico, and uh, rather than, I guess, uh, doing the job themselves, uh, their navy, they've they've created a partnership with your organization. And although the the navy is involved, and why does that kind of relationship work better, maybe? Well, we've developed partnerships with quite a few countries, and what that means is that we uh, provide the resources, the ships, and the volunteers, and and fuel, and all the other necessities, uh, and they provide the uh, the enforcement. So currently, we have working partnerships with Mexico to protect the Bikita, with Colombia to protect uh, Mapello Island uh, Marine Reserve, with Ecuador to protect the Galapagos Marine Reserve, and we're also in partnership with Peru. And that we're in Peru, we're working to uh, expose and intervene against uh, the massive uh, illegal Chinese fishing operations in the East, Eastern Tropical Pacific. On the other side of the planet, we have working uh, official partnerships with uh, Cabo Verde, uh, Santome, uh, Namibia, Tanzania, Gabon, the Gambia, Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and uh, Togo. And uh, again, they put their military on board, and we uh, intercept poachers. Uh, so in the last year, we've uh, we've intercepted and confiscated uh, 62 uh, poaching vessels uh, operating in West African waters. We actually drove out all of the pirates out of East African waters after seizing and confiscating three of the vessels. The rest of them just left and haven't been back. So that's been a very successful campaign. And we have two vessels operating in the Mediterranean doing anti-poaching campaigns. And there we have the support of the Italian Navy. In fact, one of our captains, who is sometimes captain on the Ocean Warrior, is a former admiral and a retired chief of staff of the, uh, of the Italian Navy. So we're getting a lot of support in that direction. Sea Shepherd evolved, so it's no longer really uh, an organization. It's really a global movement. We're in 42 different countries. 
and uh, all of them are separate entities working together under the auspices of Sea uh, Shepherd Global, which is based in Amsterdam. So does that is that a little bit like the Greenpeace model, where you have one international uh, office and then you've got a whole bunch of others and they're sort of independent, or or is it different? Well, it's completely different because they're all completely autonomous uh, with their own uh, boards, and uh, but we all cooperate to uh, work with Global to manage the ship. So Sea Shepherd Global doesn't really have any money at all. They're really a management uh, agency for all of the Sea Shepherd uh, entities. And when it comes to these countries, uh, have you sought out uh, these partnerships with these countries, or have they come to you? What, 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 and I guess it's different each time. In 1999, we did uh, seek out a, a partnership with Galapagos, with the Galapagos National Park, and that's still ongoing. But in 2015, after the longest pursuit of a poacher in maritime history, when we successfully chased the uh, po- ice fish poaching vessel, uh, thunder all the way from Antarctica to equatorial West Africa. That was a 110-day pursuit. Uh, we got got into a working relationship with Interpol, and then we've been invited by all of these other nations uh, ever since. In fact, uh, two years ago, we received uh, the highest military decoration in Liberia that was awarded to us for our interventions in Liberian waters. Wow. It seems like there's obviously something going on off of East Africa. There's a lot of overfishing there, and those countries have felt um, like the victims, I guess, of foreign fishing fleets. Is that true? What is the scenario there? Well, we hear a lot about pirates in, uh, you know, in Africa, but the real pirates are the Asian and the European fishing fleets, which have plundered the resources of both East and West Africa. And uh, so artisanal fishermen in these countries are basically having a major problem surviving. And uh, they've turned to piracy in many cases, like the pirates of Somalia, just really uh, impoverished fishermen. And uh, 10 years ago, I predicted that piracy would emerge in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, you know, places like Mauritania and Senegal and uh, the Congo. And in fact, that's what's happening right now. When you drive people into uh, poverty uh, because you're plundering their resources, you force them into situations where they have to survive, and piracy is one of those situations. So, in a way, you you have uh, your organization has has solved that situation for at least some of these countries, right? Well, we're working to help solve those problems, but the real problem is that our oceans are being overexploited uh, at an escalating uh, rate. So it's just unbelievable the amount of fish that are being taken illegally out of the sea. Uh, I would say about 40% of all of the fish that's being caught every year is being caught illegally. And uh, usually through transshipments uh, from smaller boats to bigger boats and brought back to places like China and Korea and Spain. Um, you know, one of the worst fishing countries is, is Spain. You know, where, for instance, they're what we call the Galician Mafia, which operates these poaching vessels worldwide. And uh, the problem is, is they get away with it because we did manage to get uh, Vidal Armadores, uh, one of the companies, into court in Spain. But the charges were dismissed for the reasons of lack of jurisdiction. So these these Spanish companies just throw their ships under all sorts of different flags of convenience and operate worldwide. But it doesn't stop the uh, the fish from being uh, brought into Spain and sold in the markets. And has it gotten worse during the pandemic? Uh, I mean, I heard the story of these massive Chinese fishing fleets that are seen, uh, I think what it was, uh, off of the Galapagos, right? 
Yeah, we're intervening there. and We've been investigating the Chinese fleet for some time. Uh, that's just uh, been an escalating uh, situation with the Chinese fleets. Uh, you know, every year it's worse than the year before. I don't think it has anything to do with the pandemic. But uh, what we've seen, uh, the pandemic has resulted in about a t- only a 10% decrease in industrialized fishing operations, uh, but about a 30% increase in poaching operations, because uh, poachers take advantage of the fact that authorities are inconvenienced by the pandemic. And it has caused inconvenience for us. Uh, I mean, our crews have to quarantine for two weeks prior to joining the ship. And if anybody's found to be positive, then it's another two weeks. Uh, and one of our vessels, the Ocean Warrior, was uh, stuck in uh, Singapore for six months and couldn't leave because of quarantine restrictions. But uh, we are managing to get the ships out and uh, we are doing the patrols. You know, once they're at sea uh, and everybody's been quarantined, it's, then it's a perfectly uh, safe situation. Hmm. And there's this new documentary coming out on uh, Netflix called Sea Spiracy. Uh, and your organization was involved in that, right? Sea Shepherd was involved? Yeah, we're co-producers of Seaspiracy. This is by the same people who made the film Cowspiracy about the impact of, uh, of the meat industry. And this film is about uh, the ecological impact of, uh, of the fishing industries worldwide, industrial fishing. And, uh, you know, back in 2015 at the COP21 conference in Paris, uh, I said that, you know, the only thing that we're going to do here to really address the climate change situation is to is to repair the damage we've done in the ocean. And to do that, we need at least a 50-year moratorium on all heavy gear industrialized fishing operations. We have to shut them down. You know, for um, hundreds or maybe thousands of years in Polynesia, the uh, shamans there had a thing called kapu, where they would declare a bay or whatever, uh, kapu, which meant there would be no fishing. If anybody is caught fishing in a kapu bay, well, it was a death penalty. And people said, well, that's a little extreme. But no, the, you know, the shamans, they understood one thing, that if the fish disappeared, the people would die. So it was a life and death situation. We don't have any kapu areas anywhere in the world anymore. You know, Rayathon, the fish bash uh, finding company, they, they put out their device to find fish. Their motto is, well, the fish can run, but they can't hide. And that's the problem. There's nowhere for the fish to hide from our greed. And I I did hear that in places where fishing has been successfully stopped, that the fish can come back. I I remember seeing that in a documentary about a place near New Zealand. And I don't know, is is that true? Well, I don't know about New Zealand. I got a pretty bad record there. But uh, (laughs) but during World War I and World War II, um, you know, that... uh, those two periods saw a revival in fish populations because of the war, which prevented the industrialized fishing operations going out. But uh, the, the, uh, the ocean is resilient, and uh, it can uh, recover if, uh, if we allow it to. But we're not giving any respite at any time. You know, everywhere we go, there's uh, the, the hunting, of, hunting down of one species after another is relentless. And, you know, you'll wipe out one species and then move to another one. I mean, when I was uh, a child living in fishing village in New Brunswick, you know, a turbot, for instance, was considered a garbage fish. And now that's a fish you buy in a New York or Parisian restaurant. Uh, you know, we've adapted constantly to a diminishment. I mean, back in the 90s, orange ruffy, which is caught off New Zealand, was uh, everywhere. Uh, but this is a fish that takes 45 years to become sexually mature and lives to be about 200 years of age. It just simply couldn't keep up with the demand. And now you don't see it anymore. But everybody just forgets and moves on to something else. And Paul, in, in your many, many years uh, uh, being uh, you know, involved with Sea Shepherd and going to sea and, 
to me, it seems like you've maybe been to every corner of the world's oceans. Is is there anywhere you haven't been uh, at sea? Well, I, I don't think anybody's ever been everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, you know, we've been in the uh, the Southern Ocean, the Atlantic, Pacific, North and South, uh, the Arctic, uh, Mediterranean, uh, oh God, Gulf of Guinea. I mean, we do operate worldwide. Uh, so we do see uh, a lot, and we have seen the uh, steady uh, diminishment of uh, marine ecosystems in all of those uh, areas. Or, or, you know, it's just been steady and uh, relentless. And uh, I could attest to, uh, you know, 50 years of observation, or actually 60 years of observation of, uh, of that decline. Can you give me, like, one, one example uh, that you can remember? Where, where the things have gone, uh, you know, like have changed quite drastically? Well, there used to be plentiful cod. You know, the average size of a North Atlantic codfish at the turn of uh, the 19th century to the 20th century was about, uh, you know, two meters at sometimes. And now 18 inches is pr- pretty much what you get. And there's very, very few of them. So we've seen the, the decline of the cod fishery. We've uh, the collapse of uh, well, bluefin tuna. There's, uh, there's been re- 90% of bluefin tuna have been removed from the sea. And uh, tuna industries around the world are being overfished. We've seen the, uh, the collapse of the Atlantic salmon population. So now they're, they're restricted to salmon farms, which in and themselves are causing all sorts of transmission of viruses to indigenous salmon populations on the West Coast and in Tasmania, Chile, and Scotland. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there, I could just go on and on and name the examples of collapses of, uh, of one species after another, collapse of ecosystems. The uh, taking of over 100 million uh, reef fish every year for the aquarium trade has been devastating coral reefs around the world. Yeah, it's uh, it's been relentless. And and there was a, you mentioned salmon, and I know that Sea Shepherd was involved in helping uh, the scientist Alexandra Morton study uh, the various viruses that infect uh, farm salmon and could inf- infect the wild population, and you know all the the negative effects that salmon farming has in in uh, British Columbia and Canada but my understanding is you've had success well with that that associated campaign because they made a, an announcement that they're going to phase out uh, open net fish farming in in British Columbia is that right yes but i would attribute our success to uh, this wonderful partnership with not only alexander morton but also with uh, uh, first nations communities uh, in British Columbia who have really uh, you know fought this in court and fought this on the ground uh, you know, 17 fish farms are closed in the Broughton Inlet on Vancouver Island. And uh, and finally, finally, the federal government is coming around to understanding that uh, this is a necessity, that uh, the, the wild salmon are severely threatened by these uh, these salmon farms. And it's, a, it's, a, it's also very unhealthy. Not only, you know, the fish, the way they're raised with uh, intensive antibiotics, intensive chemicals, um, you know, it's just, uh, and, and these poisons are spread into human populations that consume them. I mean, even the, the, the flesh of a farm-raised salmon isn't the pinkish white that we, or the pinkish color that we associate with wild salmon. It's a dirty white. And the only way it gets that color is by putting artificial dyes into the food pellets in order to uh, color the salmons uh, artificially. And, uh, you know, all of this stuff is just so uh, destructive, not only to ecosystems, but also to human health. And uh, it's been a, a long, long fight to try and get that information across because we're up against billion-dollar-a-year industries, which uh, have a lot of uh, political power. And with the fishing industry in general, um, there was um, some tests that were done, I know, here around Montreal, but I've heard of this in, in other 
other places where DNA tests were made of, of various fish that was being sold in, in restaurants and even grocery stores. And sometimes what they were, the species that they were being sold as, they weren't actually those species. Have you heard of that before? Oh, yeah. Well, that's quite extensive. There's a lot of fraud, you know, of, of various species marketed as other species, uh, tilapia and catfish posing as other types of species. You know, and also, of course, the marketing terms are so misleading. Uh, Patagonia and Antarctic toothfish, for instance, a uh, very highly endangered species are being marketed under the name of Chilean sea bass. They're you know, not from Chile and they're not a bass, but it's a marketing name. It's more attractive than, say, toothfish. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we saw this going way back to the 50s when uh, Alaska spider crabs were unmarketable until they changed the name to Alaska king crabs. Mm. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, psychological marketing, you know, to get people to consume things which they wouldn't otherwise do. The only one I know where it failed was gooey ducks, which are a rather unattractive clam on the West Coast, which they tried to market as queen clam, but it didn't go anywhere. And why would you, I've heard you say this before, that people shouldn't eat seafood because of all these reasons, but um, is it something that that, uh, people just don't know what they're eating? They don't know um, the toxins that are in it, uh, where it was fished, how it was fished? There's simply not enough uh, fish in the ocean to continue to feed uh, close to 8 billion human beings. And, uh, you know, we kill 65 billion animals on land every year for the meat industry. Now, some 20% of all of the fish that is being caught is rendered into fish meal, which is used to feed pigs and chickens and uh, domestic salmon. So we live in a world where chickens now eat more fish than all the world's albatross and puffins put together. and you know, domestic house cats are eating more fish than all the seals uh, in the North Atlantic Ocean. We're always talking about the seals eating all the fish. No, it's the house cats that are eating all the fish. We need seals and we need whales if we want to have more fish. It's uh, uh, The situation is that uh, the more, uh, you know, the ecosystems are in working in harmony, the healthier it is for all the species that, that are involved. Uh, the human equation is what is throwing us out of sync. And uh, that's why we're seeing collapse after collapse uh, in inter- international marine ecosystems. And, and when it comes to Canada, because you're, you're originally from Canada and, and um, you know, you, you, you oppose uh, the Canadian uh, commercial seal hunt for many years. And, and uh, you also were involved in, in you know, uh, chasing uh, foreign fishing fleets off the Grand Banks and so on. When it comes to the way Canada manages its fisheries, and you know, maybe we could compare it to other Western countries or other countries, period, that manage fisheries, is it the case where uh, scientists or scientific information rarely is factored into political decisions about, about fishing and, and, or economic decisions about fishing? Is that common around the world, or is Canada particularly bad when it comes to that? Well, it's bad all over the world, but Canada is particularly bad. For decades, I've referred to the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans as the single most incompetent uh, bureaucracy in the Canadian government. Uh, it doesn't listen to the scientists. In fact, it destroyed uh, uh, libraries full of, uh, of research, uh, willfully destroyed them, and closed down biological research stations. And, of course, has been at the beck and call of the fishing industry uh, ever since. Fishermen, the fishing industry gets what the fishing industry wants, whether it be on the West Coast or, or, or the East Coast. And uh, they just do not follow science. I mean, seals are not the reason that uh, there's been a decline in codfish. Uh, 
that decline came from overfishing because of the greed of the fishing industry. But they don't want to admit that. And so they, all, they use the seals or the sea lions or the whales as a scapegoat for, uh, for human excesses. And uh, I remember, um, wasn't there some story about this uh, a Newfoundland fisheries minister or a fisheries minister that was from Newfoundland that said that there was no, when he was debating you, that there were no sharks in the North Atlantic or something like that? Yeah, well, a lot of these fisheries ministers say a lot of stupid things. I mean, uh, whether it be uh, Loyola Hearn or Brian Tobin and whatever, they, you know, they say what people want them to say. I mean, Brian Tobin actually said at one time before he was fisheries minister that there was no connection between the decline of the cod and the harp seal. And then after he's fisheries minister, he says, well, I can't, you know, the reason we're losing the cod and I'll just give you two words, harp seal, you know. Right. And you had a quite a dramatic, uh, you know, scenario happen in your your life uh, some years ago when um, basically what you went into hiding and uh, you were you were living at sea because there was kind of no country that was safe to to enter because of this um, this charge from uh, well I guess you have two legal problems there right you have Japan that has an arrest warrant I think still outstanding an Interpol arrest warrant but the the Costa Rican one was finally um, dealt with right and doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I was placed on the Interpol red uh, notice list by Japan for the charge of conspiracy to trespass. Now, this is a list that was set, designed for serial killers, war criminals, and major drug traffickers. I'm the only person in history to be put on that list for the charge of trespassing. And this is, in fact, conspiracy to trespass. And Japan has the economic and political power to do that. And Japan also talked Costa Rica into putting me on, the, uh, on that list on the charge of... Uh, shipwreck endangerment because I stopped an illegal shark finning operation in Guatemala in 2002. And I did it at the request of the Guatemalan government and received a commendation for the Guatemalan government. But then I got charged by Costa Rica, even though it was in, in Guatemalan waters. But here's the thing. Uh, three years ago, with the change of government, with a new government in Costa Rica, the charges were dismissed, which is proof positive that it was political and not judicial, because if it was judicial, the, the government couldn't do that. So now I, I still have, uh, I'm still on the red list for uh, Japan because Japan's got a lot of power. Uh, but, you know, I could probably travel to, I can travel to France, no problem. And I can, and now that Trump's gone, I can return to the United States. I can't go to Canada because uh, Canadians would extradite me to Japan without a, without a blink. blink. Uh, but, um, you know, but also to show you the, the power of Japan is that uh, two years ago, I spoke at the United Nations Conference on the Oceans uh, in June on Ocean Day. And uh, then I was told the next year that I, I, I couldn't speak again because the, um, the Nippon Foundation, which is a Japanese foundation, is a major funder of the Oceans Conference at the United Nations. And they forbid me from, uh, from attending, which, which is interesting. So the, the forum, which is put together by the United Nations to, to deal with illegal fishing, is in fact funded by the companies that are involved with illegal fishing. <laughs> And when it comes to the Japanese uh, industrial whaling, which was happening in the uh, Antarctic waters, and there was uh, many, uh-huh. many years that Sea Shepherd uh, was going down there and effectively, uh, you know, preventing uh, their quotas from being attained for whales and so on. And, of course, there was the, the International Court found uh, Japan was uh, illegally taking whales in the Antarctic waters. So what's the current situation now with that? 
It was a long fight. We started in 2002 and we went until 2017. But the result is that Japan has permanently retreated from the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary and no whales are being killed in the sanctuary. And all whaling uh, as of two years ago is now restricted to the territorial waters of Japan, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark. And Iceland hasn't killed any whales for two years. Uh, so Norway is now the leading whaling nation. Japan's number two, Denmark three. Uh, when it comes to killing dolphins, though, France, and strangely enough, is killing more dolphins than anybody else with their fishing fleet, some 10,000 dolphins every year. Uh, but, you know, people ask us, well, okay, well, you drove the Japanese out of the Southern Ocean. Um, why don't you go and stop them in Japan? Well, there's two reasons for that. One, it's in Japan, <laughs> which severely restricts our movements. But two, there was nothing that they would love better than for me to come and interfere with it because they need that nationalistic fervor of outsiders coming in to tell them what to do. And the writing's on the wall with the Japanese whaling industry. It's going to be dead in five years. It's highly subsidized. Nobody buys whale meat in Japan. And so we're going to just let it die out and not interfere because I think our interference would cause more harm than good for the, for the whales. It's the same reason, for instance, that we don't no longer physically go and interfere with the, the seal hunt in Canada. In 2008, we achieved what we wanted to achieve, which is the ban on seal products uh, in Europe, which crippled this, you know, the sealing industry tremendously. You know, they still have a quota of 450,000 seals a year, but they don't take more than 50,000 because there's no market. We've destroyed the market. And uh, I think the Canadian government would love us to go back and interfere with them again to get everybody all fired up with nationalistic fervor about our seal hunt, blah, blah, blah. So sometimes you just have to know when to step back and let the industry collapse on its own. And in Japan, so there was a time, I guess, when people were still eating whale meat in sushi, high-end sushi restaurants, but that's kind of faded now. Well, it's never been more than 1% of the population that actually eats uh, whale meat. I, I mean, after World War II, of course, it was a lot because, um, you know, MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, who was in control of Japan after the war, he was the one who outfitted in the modern Japanese whaling fleet. I mean, the Americans are actually responsible for this. And uh, because it was a cheap source of protein for the Japanese people for in post-war Japan. But young people today don't touch it. They're not interested in it. Uh, and... Uh, there's about 6,000 tons of it in warehouses in Japan that can't even be sold. So um, there's just simply no market. All of these industries survive because of what I call corporate communism, which is the states uh, supporting major corporations. You know, I sometimes joke that when people say, well, aren't you opposed to welfare? I say, yeah, I'm absolutely opposed to welfare. All these damn corporate welfare bums with their hands out for, you know, for government subsidies and money. That's where the real welfare bums are, whether it be the fishing industry or the auto industry or the farmers or whatever. You know, uh, meanwhile, you know, a working mother is trying to support her children and uh, she's considered some sort of welfare queen and is to be uh, you know, fingered as a bad influence. In a, in a world where all these corporations are receiving or feeding at the government trough. When I was just following what was happening in the Antarctic waters, it seemed like every time that Sea Shepherd upped its game, Japan tried to up its game as well. And for a while, it was sort of, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And, and at some point, it seems like Japan said, well, maybe this is not worth it anymore. Well, every year we got stronger and we had our television show, Whale Wars, which brought us in a lot more support and where we started with one ship, we ended up down there with four ships. And um, 
2013, they only took 10% of their quota. And every year prior to that, they took only like 30%. So we saved about 6,500 whales, but we cost them in overall over $100 million in losses. And uh, so I think that we wore them down. That's true. That's true. And, um, you know, they, for every dollar we spent, they, they were spending a thousand. They knew the power of the show Whale Wars and they, they tried to, to shut it down, did they not? Well, yeah, they tried to shut it down. And, you know, Animal Planet and Discovery actually invited them uh, to, to participate. You know, we can put crews on your boats to cover your side, but they refused to do it. And then they turned around and said, well, it's, it's all one-sided coverage. Well, it's only one side. It was only one-sided coverage because Japan's a refusal to participate. Mm. It was truly a reality show. There was no script. They couldn't tell us what to do, and we couldn't tell them what to edit. And uh, so both sides were quite free to pursue what they had to pursue. I mean, I was annoyed sometimes, but because they didn't have people on the Japanese boats, they sometimes, you know, went a little overboard in trying to justify uh, Japan, what Japan was doing, you know, try, uh, try and trying to be fair, as they would say. Uh, but I, I just thought that that was uh, really putting words into the mouth of people who refused to, uh, to speak for themselves. And... In terms of uh, your the operations of Sea Shepherd around the world, I know that uh, you you've also participated in hurricane relief, which which is something that maybe people wouldn't necessarily necessarily associate with Sea Shepherd. But when there are you know disasters and you're there, and there's you know these are also human disasters. Do do you lend a helping hand? Well, we do, and uh, we you know we called it uh, the Good Pirates of the Caribbean project. Uh, so, yeah, we were the first to get uh, supplies into Dominica uh, when uh, Hurricane Maria hit. And then re- more recently, uh, we brought aid, uh, uh, medical supplies, uh, equipment, uh, classrooms even to, uh, to the Bahamas for, for, in response to that. And also back in uh, you know, 2011, we participated in a, a very dramatic um, rescue, search and rescue thing with that when a Norwegian sailing vessel was lost in the McMurdo Sound in Antarctica. And, uh, you know, we took a lot of risks in that case. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't find any of the survivors, but we, we did find their lifeboats and everything else. But, uh, you know, we, you know, of course, we're going to get involved in uh, search and rescue things if we're in the area and uh, the need is there. And there's the, the show Sea Spiracy, which is going to be starting on Netflix soon. But there's also a recent documentary uh, about your life called Watson uh, by the director uh, Leslie Chilcott. And I think it's it's a great film. I've I've seen it, and um, I know uh, it's it's available to 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 rent on iTunes or to buy on iTunes. Uh, what was the story about that film? Did she seek you out, and and how long ago did she start working on that film? Uh, it was about five years ago, and uh, she was the uh, director of Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore. And uh, yeah, she asked, uh, she approached me and asked if I wanted to, uh, if I was interested in the film, and and we went from there. And, uh, yeah, it was a great film, I think. Uh, you know, she did a wonderful job on it. It was uh, funded by uh, Terra Mata and uh, Jeff Skoll's uh, participant company. And, uh, and uh, it was sold to Discovery. And we also have a Sea of Shadows about our Barquita campaign that was bought by uh, National Geographic. And also Chasing the Thunder, which is uh, the story of the longest pursuit in maritime history of a poacher, 
and that was also um, bought by Discovery, and that was financed by Vulcan Productions. But uh, so these documentaries have certainly helped us a, a lot in you know getting our our message across. I've always said that the most powerful weapon that's ever been invented is the camera, and we have to take full advantage of it. I had asked you about it before, but I wanted to just go back there again. When you did have to go into hiding from uh, when when you were in Germany, and the, I guess because Germany has an extradition treaty with Japan, and it looked like you were going to get sent to Japan, so you, you had to, to go into hiding. Um, I've read descriptions of it before, but it's quite a crazy story. Could you just tell us what that experience was like and sort of where it began and where it ended? In May of 2012, I landed in uh, Frankfurt on the way to uh, Cannes in France. And uh, as I was clearing customs, I uh, saw there was a warrant out for my arrest, which was really surprised me. And I said, and they, they didn't even tell me who. They just locked me up. And it was hours later that I found out it was Costa Rica. I said, Costa Rica, what would what's Costa Rica want with me? And, and apparently it was for this, uh, because back in 2002, when I had intervened against the an illegal shark finning operation. I had been charged with eight counts of attempted murder because a fisherman made a complaint. But uh, Rob Stewart uh, was making the film Sharkwater, and he was on board, and we showed the evidence, uh, the film in the courts, and the charges were dismissed. A week later, I was brought in, and uh, they got a new judge and a new prosecutor and charged me with eight counts of criminal assault. And again, we went into court, and again, we showed the footage, and again, the charges were dismissed, and I was given clearance to leave Costa Rica, and I never heard another thing about it for until 10 years until I landed in Germany. And so anyway, I was uh, placed on house arrest in Germany, and uh, while I was there, Japan applied for extradition. And uh, then on one Friday, I, was call- I got a call from uh, a supporter in the German Ministry of Justice who said uh, that on Monday I would be arrested and taken to Japan. And, well, I wasn't going to do that. So I-, I left, got to the Netherlands, had one of our boats pick me up, uh, a sailing boat pick me up in the Netherlands and uh, crossed over to Nova Scotia. And I didn't have my pa- any passports, no papers. So I had to land in Nova Scotia, you know, uh, without papers. And... <laughs> And um, then I went to um, my hometown, which is in St. Stephen, New Brunswick, and uh, was crossed over to the United States, again, without any papers, and crossed the U.S. and rejoined the Bridge of Bardot off of Catalina Island. And uh, then that brought me to the Steve Irwin off of American Samoa. Then we went down and did the Antarctic campaign against the Japanese whalers. And then I spent from um, March through to October in the South Pacific, just living on South Pacific Islands before... I was able to return to the United States when John Kerry, the Secretary of State, allowed me to do so. But I, I have to say, it was a, an incredible adventure, and I think I thoroughly enjoyed my time in the South Pacific in exile on deserted islands. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, that's just one of the things. When you're up against a country like uh, as powerful as Japan, then you're, you have to expect these consequences. But all those consequences were acceptable because the out, the outcome was the uh, end of Japanese whaling in the Southern Ocean whale sanctuary. And if you're willing to risk your life to stop their illegal whaling activities, uh, the other, anything else is just a, an inconvenience. And when, when you were in the South Pacific, you really were on these islands that were totally uninhabited, I guess, right? Yeah. Spent a lot of time on Opalanga Island, which is a Tongan island. Uh, also islands, uh, Phantom Island and the Great Barrier Reef of Australia, and islands off of Vanuatu and, and New Caledonia. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, 
the wildlife that, uh, you know, turtles and birds and such. I mean, I spent a couple of nights on Rose Atoll off American Samoa. There's a million seabirds on the, on that tiny little island while we were there. And so you're sort of living on the boat while you're, you're just, uh, tied up near, near the, the island, right? And no, sometimes I had to live on the island because the boat had to go for supplies and I couldn't go and there would be, so, you know, uh, quite a bit of time between going to get the supplies and coming back. So, like, uh, you know, I'd spend weeks on Opalanga Island, for instance, uh, in uh, the, this Tongan Island, and there's nobody on there, just uh, um, we had a lot of bats, I think. But, <laughs> but there's but, a lot of marine life. But would, there, would you have a shelter to, to live in? Like Oh, yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah, just a, a tent and everything. It was fine. Yeah. Okay. I mean, living in the South Pacific on an island is not exactly... Uh, require spartan <laughs> spartan <laughs> behavior i'm sure i, I want to ask you about you know the future of sea shepherd but uh, at the same time uh, you did have a ship uh, an amazing ship which is called i think the ocean warrior uh, that was custom made right that was built and and this was from money from the postal code lottery in in uh, the netherlands is that true yeah, the Dutch Postal Code Lottery gave us a grant of 10 million euros. And with that, we built the Ocean Warrior, which is presently operating out of Peru right now. So it's a custom-made uh, vessel just for our purposes, and it's great. We have 14 ships, and it's uh, the only one that was was designed and built expressly for us. So what what is it about its design that, that you really think is an amazing thing? Or is there any, any technical aspects about it that would be interesting? Well, four things that are essential. One is speed. Uh, two is ice-breaking capability. Three is uh, long-range ability. And four is the uh, a helicopter deck. Okay. And, and you've been buying vessels for many years uh, for Sea Shepherd's uh, activities. Uh, is there something that you always look for in vessels that you buy? Or what, what are, like, because I, I know it, you know, especially in the early years, you you didn't have as much funds as an organization, so you had to kind of make a economic decision. But what were you always looking for in vessels? Always looking for long range and fast and ice drinking vessels. Okay, I, I guess it's the same. Like if you're buying a car, how many kilometers are on it? Uh, is that an issue when you you know the age of a vessel when you when you're buying a vessel? No. No, the White Holly, which uh, was actually donated to us, was built in 1946. The Bob Barker was built in 1950. Uh, so, no, if they're well-maintained, they're, they're okay. So what, what is the future for Sea Shepherd? What's the, the next couple of years looking like? Or Well, Sea Shepherd has evolved from being a, an organization into a global movement, which is perfect because, you know, you can stop an individual like the Japanese tried to stop me and you can try and stop a, an organization like they tried to do to us in the U.S., but uh, you can't shut down a movement, and that's uh, incredible, incredibly powerful. And uh, so right now we have like almost about 250 volunteers on those 14 ships, but we have, uh, we're registered in 42 countries, and they all have chapters. For instance, there's 19 chapters in France, 17 chapters in Australia, and uh, that's uh, an a great network and it's no longer you know i'm no longer like you know running things i'm more of a figurehead really which is good because uh, it's impossible for one person to to control a movement 
and so I don't even know half the stuff that's going on. You know, I, I hear a news story. Oh, you know, Sea Shepherd Nicaragua saved these turtles. And I said, whoa, we got Sea Shepherd Nicaragua. Did not even know that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And um, I, I, maybe my last question. Uh, you know, one of the reasons, obvious, or the, the main reason why Sea Shepherd exists is to try and protect the amazing wildlife in our world's oceans. And I know that, you know, you've written about uh, how smart whales are, all this, this research coming out about how smart octopuses are and, and, and how smart squids are. And so I think, you know, so much of our attitude about what exists in the ocean and, and the way that humans have always had this superiority complex over all, all other life on the planet. What, what, what do you think is special about the, the wildlife in the world's oceans? What I always try to tell people is uh, imagine the planet is a spaceship, which is what it is, really. This incredible voyage around the Milky Way. And every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides us with the food we eat and the air we breathe and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system is operated by a crew, a crew of Earthlings, uh, you know, citizens of this planet. And that's not us. We're not, we're not crew. We're, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time entertaining ourselves. But what we're doing is murdering crew members. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery that maintains the life support system begins to break down. And that's what's happening right now. Uh, there are many species far more important than we are that makes it possible for us to even be here. If phytoplankton were to disappear from the seas tomorrow, we would die. We don't exist on this planet without phytoplankton produces up to 70% of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. We don't live on a planet without worms and trees and bees and fish and fungi and viruses and all these other things. Uh, we, they're essential for our survival. The problem is, is that humans have developed over the years this anthropocentric point of view that everything is about us, that all centers around us. We're the center of creation. Every single human religion is based on that premise that we're superior, we're dominant, we're the only thing that's important. Um, this is where we can learn from indigenous cultures around the world, uh, return to the biocentric point of view, the understanding that, uh, that we're part of everything, that everything is interdependent, and that the strength of any ecosystem is in diversity. And uh, so I think this is really important. For instance, right now, this COVID-19 thing, why is this uh, so big? It's because, well, it's killing white people. <laughs> you know, since 1995, we've had uh, well, even before that, we have AIDS, we have Ebola, we've had MERS and SARS and West Nile and Hantavirus and on and on and on. There's so many viruses. Emerging viruses have been coming more and more at us. And the reason for this is the destruction and diminishment of ecosystems and species, because viruses associated with those systems need somewhere to go. And we're a very attractive host. There are nearly 8 billion of us. Viruses are very, very important for all plants and animals, and every species of plant and animal has a virus that's associated with it, or more than one virus associated with it. And when those species are diminished, well, those viruses go somewhere, and we've been picking up a lot of them. For instance, the coronavirus, the common cold, we got that from horses. We get flu from pigs and, and, and chickens, and we're going to get more and more of this. So this is just not a one. Vaccines are not going to solve the problem. They're just Band-Aids. The only solution is to make is to preserve ecosystems and learn to live in harmony with all of these other species. And on top of uh, zoonomic transmission of viruses from other species, we also have emerging pathogens coming from 
that have been long dormant in melting permafrost. In 2017, a thousand reindeer and uh, one human being died becoming anthrax spore that was released from the permafrost. You know, this is going to become more of a more of a problem, and uh, we're not going to solve it by sticking our head in the sand and looking just looking for vaccines. We're only going to solve it by by addressing the root cause. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for for joining us on on Equilibrium today. Thank you, Ryan. And that was an interview recently done with Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society from his home near Woodstock, Vermont. You are listening to the Ecolibrium Radio Podcast. My name is Ryan Young. Captain Paul Watson is the founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, an organization dedicated to research, investigation, and enforcement of laws, treaties, resolutions, and regulations established to protect marine wildlife worldwide. In the interview, we talked about the upcoming documentary, Sea Spiracy, which is coming out March 24th on Netflix, which is actually co-produced by Sea Shepherd. So that's coming up um, very soon. So watch out for that. If you want to find out more information about Sea Shepherd, you can visit their website, seashepherd.org. That's S-E-A-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D.org. You've been listening to the Ecolibrium Radio Podcast. Have a great day.